Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, patients, families, colleagues, and curious folk to the PM&R Report. Our podcast is brought to you by the University of Texas at Houston in conjunction with McGovern Medical School and TIRR Memorial Hermann Department of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation. We bring you another segment of medical explanation, reviews of current literature, expert opinions, debates, and just plain interesting stuffs. Well, my name is uh, Saleh Sheikh. I'm a PGY3 in the UT PM&R department. I'm here with uh, two uh, members from the Shirley Ryan Ability Lab. I'm gonna let them introduce themselves and also ask them what their favorite thing to eat in Chicago is. Go right ahead. <laughs> All right, I can go first. Um, I'm Dr. Leslie Rydberg. I'm a general physiatrist, and I uh, work with a medically complex patient population, including a lot of COVID rehabilitation. And uh, obviously, my favorite Chicago-style food is pizza. Um, I do love the deep dish, but I also love the thin crust, so I'm not that picky, really. Any pizza is good pizza. Very good. And I'm, <laughs> and I'm Prakash Jayabalan. I'm the, I'm the Director of Clinical Musculoskeletal Research at the Shady Ryan Ability Lab, and I'm a clinician scientist. Um, absolutely the same as Dr. Reitberg. I am uh, pizza, but I, I'm not a fan of deep dish, actually. I like thin crust. So thin crust from Lou Malnati's. No, I don't get any, I don't get any money from them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Very good. Very good. I am quite fond of the city of Chicago. I, I do like the, uh, um, dish pizza. I also, I'm also fond of a good Portillo sandwich. Oh, yes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. All right. Wonderful. Um, so great, great grand rounds. Thank you both very much. Um, let's just dive right into it, uh, given the limited time we have. Um, <clears throat> so uh, we had a really good question at the end about um, what uh, therapies are good for uh, reducing oxygen dependence in uh, um, COVID IPR patients, and I was wondering um, if you could comment a little more about uh, the graded exercise regimen and uh, what you found worked well and what didn't work. So, in the inpatient setting, we've seen a lot of patients who have prolonged uh, hypoxia and end up on supplemental oxygen. And honestly, we don't try to wean the oxygen too quickly because we want to make sure that we're not limited by shortness of breath or hypoxia during therapy sessions. So we'll actually turn up the oxygen to allow our patients to exercise uh, at the highest possible capacity. But we keep a very close eye on what their oxygen needs are because if we can get our patients off of oxygen before discharge, I think that's really helpful. Um, so we make sure that we're doing any secretion management, uh, treatment of cough symptoms. We do a lot of training with expiratory muscle strength, uh, training with our speech therapist, 
Um, our patients usually see cardiopulmonary therapists to work on uh, breathing techniques. Uh, we do a lot with um, energy conservation, but really working to increase the aerobic tolerance um, works best in our standpoint. So we can get many, but certainly not all of our patients off of oxygen in the inpatient setting. In the outpatient setting, it's the same thing. We want to make sure that our patients have adequate oxygen support to be able to tolerate therapies. Very good. Very good. Thank you. And uh, I saw you said that antitussives don't work for COVID coffee. You had to use opiates to allow them to uh, you know, sleep and participate in therapies. When you finally decided to wean them, did you find that the cough was um, better and Went away. So I honestly try to avoid opioids whenever possible, um, but I've tried all the classic uh, cough uh, suppressants, cough inducers, um, and uh, you know our patients like to have them available because they feel like they're doing something. But in my personal experience, none of it really helped with their cough. Um, in a few very severe cases where patients couldn't sleep through the night, we did try opioids, um, and it, it did seem to help the best. But I'm certainly not going to advocate for using opioids to treat cough in the vast majority of our patients. Okay, very good, very good. All right, um, this next question is kind of from a resident standpoint. So what would you say are some of the um, biggest don't miss diagnoses from uh, COVID rehab patients? And this is for both the inpatient and the outpatient setting. So, you know, over and above the normal medical don't miss diagnoses. I know in some inpatient rehab settings, we can't monitor you know, D-dimers every day, especially in the clinic. So I wanted to ask both of you in, in both settings, you know, what you would say are, um, you know, things that you absolutely cannot miss. I think in the inpatient setting, the risk of DVT and PE is the biggest. So absolutely look at the, uh, the D-dimers and uh, what their anticoagulation plan is and keep a close eye out for any symptoms that might make you think of that. Um, you know, big picture in rehab, I always talk to my residents about why why is the patient in, in rehab? You know, you know, what are their impairments and why do they really need to be here? And so it's really easy to say, oh, well, they're, they have deconditioning, you know, they have respiratory dysfunction, but I really encourage them to do a very thorough neuromuscular physical exam, especially in this post-COVID patient population, because many times they do not come over carrying a diagnosis of critical illness myopathy. They do not come over with a diagnosis of a ulnar neuropathy or fibular neuropathy, we are making those diagnoses in, in rehab. And so being able to identify those diagnoses really helps us in counseling patients, in helping with prognosis for those patients, for setting appropriate rehab lengths of stay, because we're treating neurologic complications and not just medical complications. Okay, very good. And I, I would just add from the outpatient side, I, I'm an outpatient MSK doc, as I, as I mentioned, and one of the, things that um, we're seeing is is actually a lot of people having exacerbation of joint disease. Um, we're not sure whether that's, a, and the challenge is whether that's a long COVID phenomena, whether it's a physical inactivity phenomenon, whether it's related to inflammation. Um, but I think, for example, if a, if a, uh, when a resident presents to me in terms of that, I think that that is important to know whether the patient had any, the timeline of having COVID and then the, the uh, worsening of their symptoms. We don't know the importance of that, but I think it's still an important thing to to document. Okay, very good. Thank you, um, Dr. Jerry Balan. So I, you said you're an outpatient, uh, mostly physician. So after um, our COVID rehab patients 
leave uh, inpatient rehabilitation and you see them in clinic, um, <clears throat> what would you say are some of the biggest issues that they face um, that you've found are, are you know, most common issues and also most common treatments that are specific to this population? Well, yeah, and I think actually Dr. Rybo probably sees even more of the post-COVID patients than I do, but I would say um, in my practice, I'd say that the two, the, the one that I've seen a lot of is the the brain fog that a lot of the patients complain of. So this is the uh, co some cognitive dysfunction. I see at baseline a lot of concussion patients, and so this is pre-COVID, and some of their presentations are just so similar to concussion patients. So I've seen a few post-COVID, long COVID patients, and they're complaining of sort of cognitive dysfunction. There's definitely uh, exacerbation of affective issues, such as depression and anxiety as a result. Um, and then that, that impacts sometimes their overall general function in terms of uh, joint disease and other things. So I, I am, um, so those are some of the things that I see. I'm sure Dr. Rydberg probably sees more of the sort of general rehab type patients and then their, their transition into outpatient care. So she may be able to comment on that. Mm -hmm. I agree that the brain fog is huge. And so looking at them from a post-concussion kind of protocol can be very, very useful. Um, in my practice, I see a lot of fatigue and activity intolerance. And so how can we get people back to, when I say activity intolerance, I'm really talking about activities of daily living, functioning within their job. I'm not talking about higher level athletics here. I'm talking about being able to get through a regular work day. And so a lot of it is kind of looking at the big picture. How can we address fatigue? How can we get them to gradually increase their exercise? Um, I have one woman who's been pretty successful because she walked every day and she started walking five minutes a day, five minutes, you know, and she then increased it to six minutes. And then she increased it to seven minutes. And it's a very gradual increase. And she could really tell when she was pushing herself too fast. Um, so really a very clearly um, gradual increase has worked the best so far. Would you say that these issues that you see in clinic are also some of the same barriers to uh, fully reintegrating into the community? Absolutely. So I definitely have patients who are unable to work as a result of their symptoms, and I have patients who are back at work, you know, despite their symptoms. And it leads to kind of a whole host of issues, including, um, you know, the inability to sleep, which worsens the fatigue, and then the brain fog, which means it's harder to get through work because you're trying to manage the cognitive load of a, you know, potentially high-powered job which then makes you more fatigued, which then means you need more sleep, but then you're unable to sleep because of the anxiety and that you're not exercising because you can't tolerate it. And so it really is this big spiral, unfortunately. And so how can you break that cycle? Um, and so it requires a lot, a lot of support. And, and Sarah, to, to piggyback what Dr. Ryberg just said, I think one of the things we uh, we did a focus group actually of like individuals who, who um, had had COVID uh, on the inpatient side and then transitioned into the community as part of a grant submission. And what we found was that they're, they're, the issues were not just pertaining to physical. A lot of it was related to cognitive, being able to go back to work. Um, and a lot of the work, work environments were very concerned about someone having a COVID diagnosis particularly in the early stages and then coming back to work. There were also some um, issues with discrimination in families. Families didn't want uh, individuals who had had COVID at family events, um, uh, despite even wearing masks, et cetera. And then there's a lot of the individuals, as, as you know, that had um, 
some of the critical illness type issues that are struggling to get back to work. So, but I would say that the biggest thing from that focus group that I took away was actually, we, we did a couple of them and, and it was the affective components and the cognitive issues that were seemed to be predominate in a lot of these patients in being able to reintegrate into, into the community. Mm -hmm. Yeah, very interesting. There are a lot of social barriers at play. Are there any special programs uh, that are being created to help these patients uh, reintegrate into the community? Uh, like, for example, um, I know the multidisciplinary clinics are uh, topping yeah. out long COVID, post COVID. Uh, does that include, uh, you know, PTOT speech and maybe new programs, you know, work integration programs? I think an ideal post COVID clinic uh, includes. Um, uh, PM&R physicians, potentially pulmonary physicians, uh, physical therapy, occupational therapy, speech therapy, uh, psych support, obviously, and vocational rehabilitation. Again, that is kind of um, a dream clinic, and I'm sure there are even more members of the team who would be useful, including uh, respiratory therapy, um, dietitian, things like that. But I do think it really highlights the fact that it really does take a village to treat this kind of patient population. The other thing in the non-medical realm is actually a lot of uh, uh, organizations, disability organizations in particular, we work with an organization called Access Living in Chicago, and they, they have seen like significant upticks in the number of individuals with disabilities living in Chicago because of COVID. And um, I think, as I presented, one of the things was this discrepancy in terms of uh, in di diversity in terms of our patient population. So having access to care in the community was a big challenge, even on the so once that and, and some of this focus group sort of bore that out that individuals from certain ethnicities were not getting or, or certain insurance status were not getting the treatment that they needed. And so a lot of organizations, particularly in the Chicago and area, and I'm sure in, in, in uh, Texas as well, have are providing that support. So um, and I think that that's one of the challenges is that we see a lot of the inpatients, but we don't see people in their everyday life. And I think giving them access is, is really, really important as well. And one other thing that I've seen that's been really unique in, in this situation is that uh, there have been these large groups of virtual online patient support groups with thousands of members for the post-COVID population. And these groups have actually banded together to become patient advocacy groups. And so they're actually doing research and partnering with physicians and um, publishing data on the findings and symptoms that patients are supporting. So I actually kind of have enjoyed seeing the the patient as the advocate and as the researcher that has developed uh, as a result of the pandemic. Very interesting. Uh, all right, lastly, so what would you tell a young trainee that wants to get involved and uh, do more for this specific population? Um, Dr. Jaibon, I think I'll let you take that one since you're really the one <laughs> working with all the trainees. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, a lot of the, as you, as you probably saw from my talk, a lot of the um, residents want to get involved. I think I'm sure your your program is the same in terms of this area. It is it is tough to to to, um, to as a resident to really do something huge uh, in terms of 
but I think really even just documenting, which you probably saw a lot of the residents just do simple projects, just understanding how it's impacting our specific patients is so important to some of the advocacy efforts that people are making in physiatry to help this population. Um, and one, I'm on the Healthcare Policy Committee of the AAP Manara. One of the things is that we're advocating for individuals with disabilities in terms of COVID care because they're not getting the care that they need. But all of this data that we presented today really was just as that, that was part of the impetus is to show that we have our own data to show that these patients that we see every day are impacted by COVID more so than able-bodied individuals. So I would say simple studies like that, just a survey of patients retrospective reviews of how our patients do is a really good way and really beneficial to our field in terms of um, COVID uh, research. Uh, and that's really my focus. Okay. All right, wonderful. Okay, all right. Thank you both very much for agreeing to participate in our podcast. Very good information and a great, uh, interesting Grand Rounds topic. Hot topic. All right, thanks for having us. Thank you. Have a good day. Thank you. you nice too. weekend. See you later. Right. Thanks. Bye. 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 I would like to make it clear that we make every effort to broadcast correct information. We will double check facts and assertions, but we do ask our listeners to realize that medicine is a constantly changing science and an art. One physician may have an entirely different way of doing things from another, and any views expressed are solely those of the person expressing them. We welcome any comments, suggestions, and correction of errors. We do not accept any money, services, or sponsorship otherwise from pharmaceutical, supplement, or device companies. By listening to this podcast or reading this blog, you agree not to use this podcast or blog as medical advice to treat any medical condition in either yourself or others, including but not limited to patients that you may be treating. Consult your own physician for any medical issues that you may be having. This entire disclaimer also applies to any guests or contributors to the podcast or blog. Under no circumstances shall McGovern Medical School, any guests or contributors to the podcast or blog, or any employees, associates, or affiliates of UT Health be held responsible for damages arising from use of this podcast or blog. We are here to stimulate the dialogue. We are here to get the wheels spinning. We are here to spark new questions in the field of medicine. Thank you for listening.